But anyway, Patricia, I just want to play something for you, if you don't mind. And if you can just tell me where this takes you, okay? Is it playing? Yeah, that's better. That's Frankie. Frankie Bourne. <laughs> I should come on then and she'd say, now, the problems that I'll be discussing today may not be yours, but they could be someday. In all events, Woman's Page draws its material from the lives and events of real people. And it comes to you now from the makers of Jacobs, the people who bake better biscuits better every day. And then the music. Do, 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 do. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, long ago, if you said, do the problem, oh, tell Frankie. Oh, who do you think you are, dear Frankie? And she used to come on, I think, around half past one, two o'clock, and we'd, we'd finish all the jobs and start listening to Frankie. So it was your time then to sit down at the table at that and have a cup of tea and maybe a cigarette and listen to Frankie and join in the conversation, which you're like, you know. Dear Frankie, I've been keeping company with this man for ten years. I must ask you... What is your opinion about my chances of getting married? I just remember we listened and we didn't say a word about what was being said. Our advice was, it was more about the interplay between people than anything to do with sex. Dear Frankie, do you know of any woman who has successfully trained mother-spawned men? You thought you were the only one to listen to her, but the whole country did. To me, she was very condescending. And I'd hear Frankie when I'd go home for my dinner. I thought she was the most sophisticated modern woman. So many people remember Frankie Byrne, Ireland's iconic agony aunt. Her programme started in 1963 on Radio Éireann, as it was known at the time, when the radio was the centre of the house. It was a time when our mothers were at home and we had dinner in the middle of the day. Frankie Byrne's Woman's Page, or Dear Frankie as it was known, united people all over the country. They gathered in kitchens, factories and boarding schools to catch a glimpse into the love lives of other people and delight in Frankie's no-nonsense advice. And earlier this year, many of those same listeners gathered in theatres around the country to watch a play about her life and remember those radio days. I often wondered about Frankie as the years went on. Had she done counselling or anything? Because I always thought she was very good. Living in Ireland was kind of secret. Sex was taboo. You could murder somebody, you could rob somebody, but you couldn't have sex outside marriage. My name is Nuala Hayes and I played Frankie Byrne in the play Dear Frankie. Nuala listened to Frankie's old recordings to prepare for the character. And when I heard the voice, it was the voice that brought me back. It was deep, lived in, gravelly. It told the story of her life. And she sounded like a woman who really knew what she was talking about. She sounded like a woman who had lived a life and her life was in her voice. This is Frankie Byrne with another edition of Woman's Page, a programme for maybe about you. Now, the problems I'll be discussing today may not be yours, but they could be someday. 
An all events woman's page draws us material from the lives and events of real people. This program is about some of those people. Do you remember Frankie's voice? If you do, this program is maybe about you. And if you don't remember her voice, this program is for you. This chap out there doing my shed. <laughs> Hold on to that one. Okay. <laughs> Mary is one of those listeners. She's in her late 60s and glamorous, and she lives in a bright and tidy house in the suburbs of Cork. She was listening to Frankie back in the early 60s. After dinner, she'd settle into a chair at the kitchen table with a cup of tea and a cigarette and tune into the programme. Although she was young, her life would have made a great letter to Frankie. One day, for example, when she was 17, she was brought to the doctor by her mother. She said, doctor, she said she's getting very pale. And he said, that happens, she might be anemic or something like that. He said, no problem, girl. He said, sit up there and we'll have a look at it anyway. At that time, we wore Olands. Which was sexy wear, no, like with suspended the nylons. <laughs> Back then, it was just standard. But that, oh, that was standard. So I'd always remember I laid up on the bed for him anyway. So um, put the telescope in his ears and he started taking around the stomach. So my mum went out and he said, "We said no, young girl." He said, "Do you know you're pregnant?" So it started crying, the biggest shock in the world to me. So I started walking. She says, you hang on, oh, one minute, lady. She says, "I always remember the words." That was your mother. Yeah, you hang on one minute, no, lady. She says. You have one partner in life. You have chosen yours. How did that feel? I just kept on walking. Run quick, run quick, run quick. You know? So uh, he came over to meet my mum then that Wednesday night. His parents came over the Thursday night. My mum went down to the priest Thursday and I was married at 7 o'clock on the side altar on Saturday, three days later. And you had to be married at the side altar because you weren't pure. Married in front of the front altar. No white wedding dress or anything. weren't pure enough to wear that. So uh, just as the priest opened the church, South Chapel, and we just got married at the side altar. Just his parents and my parents there, that's it. Walked up home then, had a bit of breakfast, that was it. Do you remember what you felt like on the day? Before? I felt numb, nothing. Nothing. I couldn't say that I'd feel bad, but this is what you had to do, and that's what you've done. One of the things everyone remembers about Frankie's programme is the music. She only ever played Frank Sinatra. And although Woman's Page was supposed to be for women, Frankie had some male listeners too, not all of them adults. I listen to Sinatra. I find it very fulfilling. That's Joe Ambrose, a small-town boy. His mother wasn't really into radio, but when Joe was 13 he'd sneak into her American-style kitchen and listen to Frankie and be introduced to what probably seemed like another world, far from the town he lived in. That gave the whole thing an air of sophistication. It was a message that was being given to you. You know, She might have been talking about people who were going to see Big Tom on the Mainliners or Larry Cunningham on a Friday and Saturday night, but the interplay they were getting from her was of a kind of a jazz era, urbanite. It's a very eccentric thing to do, to have a show, even just a 15-minute show, where all the music was one artist. If you know anything about Frank Sinatra, it was generally classic era Sinatra. They were kind of semi-appropriate to whatever the problem 
was. Fools rushing where angels fear to tread. And so I come to you, my love, my heart above my head. There was good work and bad work. The good work was cream crackers. Radio Erin used to have a lot of sponsored programmes. Woman's Page was sponsored by Jacobs, and they had a huge factory in Bishop Street in the centre of Dublin, where they employed people like Patricia and Maura. But now, I used to go home for my dinner. We'd get an hour lunch and we'd rush home, sit and listen to Frankie, and then there'd be all the discussions then when we all got back to work. We wore a net over our hair and a hat over the net. We'd done hand wrapping. It was, there was no machines at that time. We were all sitting together at the bench. Can you imagine a big, long bench? Up at the top of the bench, there was what you called a cliffler and a weigher. A cliffler was someone who examined the biscuits. We would have been on what you call piecework. Is that right, Maura? Cream crackers were flat, you know, they were easy to, to hold on to. Custard creams were good. <laughs> the bad ones were Marietta, because trying to hold them, they would be slipping everywhere. Nice work if you can get it, and you can get it if you try. So how old would you have been when you were working there? I was 14 starting. I started in 1957. And how did you get the job? Oh, I went for an interview. Oh, my God, I didn't know. My ma brought me down. And I remember getting the smell of the biscuits, Bishop Street, going in and, and went up into an office and we didn't know what we were letting ourselves in for because I tear down to here, right, long black hair down to They got your hair up and they looked in it to see what your knits or anything like that, right? And I always remember they looked at my hands and I had very soft skin and they said, oh, you could never walk in the chocolate room. Where is chocolate? <laughs> Two hearts become one Who could ask for anything more We were surrounded by smells We had Guinnesses, the barley, the hops I can still smell that We had the other place that killed the horses The knackers place All that was Dinkin All was horrible It was horrible, wasn't it? Yeah But I do remember listening to Frankie now On the bench Dear Frankie Because you kept You'd be listening, really listening intently, Jory, yeah. I listen to your programme every week. You make me feel so young. And I've been hoping to hear a problem that would throw some light on my own situation. But up to now, I haven't been lucky. Well, you know, I think her luck is in this town. I'm such a happy individual. Any man who can avoid the subject of marriage for ten years really has no intention of getting I want to go play hide-and-seek. I want to go and bounce the moon Just like a toy balloon In the Dear Frankie play that toured Ireland, listeners' letters were read by Nuala Hayes. Dear Frankie, although I'm originally from the country, I've been living in Dublin for years. I have a splendid job as a cook in a hotel and I like it very much, but I'd also like to be married. I'm 39 and my fellow is 42. He has a small farm in County Galway, but he drives up to see me once a week and also when there's a match in Croke Park. He says we'll marry once his herd of cattle is free from TB, which could take another two years. Should I wait or chance taking a Dublin man who's always bothering me with marriage proposals in the kitchen? I can't afford to play hard to get at 39. TB or not TB, that is the question. 
I wonder if this is a long finger exercise, but somehow I don't doubt his intentions, and I don't think you do either. It's the fact that you're 39 that's worrying you, isn't it? Well, it shouldn't. And if you intend to be a farmer's wife, you better learn something about the business, its ups and downs, and show concern and understanding about his present problems. As for your city slicker slipping into the kitchen with marriage proposals while you're slaving over a hot oven, if he's serious, why doesn't he bring you out somewhere for a meal and whisper sweet nothings while someone else is doing the cooking? Whether you say yes or no is up to you. But the real crux, I think, is the fact that you were born in 1924 instead of 1944. Forget about that. Any woman who can command two applicants for her hand in marriage can afford to relax. Many a girl half your age isn't as well off as you in the marriage stakes. I don't think people who have those kind of problems in the provincial and rural Ireland of those years would have been quite so pitifully eloquent. One of the many things people wondered about Frankie's programme was, did she write some of those letters herself? I feel that she must have burnished the letters they came into her at least quite a bit because they all had a certain um, similarity to one another. They were all written in a kind of a dry style, which was her style, and they were all pithy and they were all to the point. I've got you under my skin. It's a secret she's taken to the grave with her, but we know for sure that the contents of one particular letter weren't totally genuine. It was written by Pat Wallace, who's now the director of the National Museum. But back then, he was an agriculture student living in Diggs in Galway. We used to listen to Frankie Byrne, about five or six of us, and we got the idea, someone had the idea, that there was a few bob in it, that Frankie would pay her people writing into her. And uh, I never thought she did, but I went along with it, and I wrote the letter. Dear Frankie, I generally regard myself as an independent kind of person, you know. And jeez, you know, we were shy enough at the time ourselves. It wasn't that we, there were women falling in front of us, I can tell you. But anyway, the, 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 the problem was that I was an ag student in college and that I was going out with this girl and spending far too much time with her and I was wasting my father's few bob. Am I to give up this girl or what? She's wrecking my study kind of path. So Frankie said, uh, you're either trying to fool yourself or fool me, she said. What was it like then when you heard your letter read out? We fell around. It was amazing. We, I remember we were listening in the digs in Galway and we just could not believe it. But it was a very sharp kind of a, a reply to the whole request for help. <laughs> tells you what it's like to love and lose how it feels to waken and have breakfast with the blues how to go on living how to face another day no one ever tells you the way Frankie to me was like another person in the house and somebody I thought I knew absolutely. Monica McAndrew lives in one of the remotest kitchens that Frankie's voice reached into. We'd have everything done. Myself and my mother, I remember, we'd finish all the jobs and we might have a cup of tea and sit beside the fire and listen to her. 
She lives on top of a hill in County Mayo in the house her father built in 1931. The house overlooks some bogs and a lake. And inside, there's a cosy kitchen with an inviting fire. We grew up here in the village of Gusmore, family of nine, and went to school in Rathmurrigan, two and a half miles across the mountain. Out of nine, seven of us immigrated. So how old were you then when you went to England? Just gone 18. And I got into a teaching hospital in Sheffield where I'd done my general training. It was amazing, the difference between coming from here and there. And I remember they had these clubs, Protestant clubs or Church of England clubs or something, but I used to stand on a stool near my sister's place where they had this club and watch them dancing, and I thought it was marvellous because I never saw it here. Let me tell you about the Irish clubs now. I went to an Irish club in Manchester where it was run by Benny Hollis Brothers. You could never put your arms round a man's neck on the floor. He would say, excuse me, dance properly. They were the 60s. And did you meet any nice fellows over there? Loads of fellows. We were so Catholic that we wouldn't, even when you were dancing with a Protestant, you felt you were committing a sin. <laughs> God. How awful. I remember meeting many doctors in my day and if I thought they were divorced, of course, we just worked with them and tolerated the work. But you couldn't look at them. Oh my God, it was like the devil being in the ward. And when they praised you, I thought they had an eye for me. I was so unused to being acknowledged by anybody. And it said, you're a good sister. You know, Mac, you're a good sister. I said, my God, I hope you didn't have an eye for me. You never got praise here, even by your parents, let me say. You were never told that you were any good. I remember my mother saying to me when I brought her certificate home one time, she said, roll it up, put it in the newspaper and put it in the bottom of the wardrobe. You might need it one day. But this certainly didn't raise your ego. The first shock I had, I was a very young sister. I remember I'd just done my four years and I was made a sister very quickly. I remember being on a surgical ward and one evening two of the girls came to me and said, they used to always call me Mac. Sister Mac, could you mind if we left a little bit early? We have to go to the clinic. And I said, why? You're not feeling very well. And they said, no, we, we are on the contraceptive pill. And I said, pardon? I said, why? Well, you know, if we go to the penny farthing and we meet somebody, we don't want to get pregnant. And I couldn't put that together. That's how it was. The Catholic girls in those days didn't play around. No, they didn't. I remember girls getting pregnant here. They never returned home. Fear. That was the best contraception. You had to do what you had to do in bed from as well, you know, mm. whether you liked it or not, because that was a men's thing. Mm. You know, you didn't refuse your husband because if you did, you wouldn't get absolution. Really, you weren't allowed to refuse? My mother went to the, I remember a big hullabaloo one time because she went to confession nearly every week and received, you know. And um, all the women would go to early mass and then we all went to 10 o'clock to the children's mass. Everybody up and down the road to confession and it started. That was the thing. Loads of kids in the roads, you know. I remember another day my mother came up and she was after going down to, uh, she was about 12 of us down and I uh, told the priest she was avoiding a family and uh, he refused to give her absolution. No, she refused to give my mother absolution at that time. It was devastating. And he said that God said go forth and multiply. And that was a sin to waste the man's seed. So you weren't, you weren't allowed to say no to sex? No. Not your man. Jesus, no. And was there any... You were there for men's use and benefit. Can I say that again? You were there for men's use and benefit, my mother used to say, you know. And that's what the men believed then as well? Sure. It was their right. It was their right. You know? Hmm.
Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. Dear Frankie, I'm a country girl now living in Dublin and I love the city. I've a good job, a very nice boyfriend, and we had planned to marry fairly soon. Suddenly everything is in a mess. He has inherited a farm and a house from his uncle and he's thrilled. Well, I'm not thrilled, even though he assures me that his farm and house are very modern. Nevertheless, I think if he really loved me, he would stay in Dublin and maybe sell this property and stay in the city where I would be happy. I'm sure you'd agree with me, Frankie, but I'd like to hear your opinion anyway. Yours sincerely, Country Girl. Once I get you up there where the air is rarefied. Basically, what it comes down to is this. If you love him, you'd live on a mountainside with him. But if you blackmail him into your way of thinking, you may never know a day's happiness. It's a choice between suburban comfort or rural comfort. And if it's too big a risk for you, then pick up your marbles and get out of the game. Angels cheer, cause we're together. Weather-wise, it's such a lovely day. Just say the words and we'll beat the birds down to Acapulco Bay. It's perfect for a flying honeymoon, they say. To me, I think I was irritated because I think it was what she was saying, because I felt she was being condescending. That's Jane Anderson, and she's a bit different to people like Monica. While Monica was heading over to Swinging Britain in the 60s and 70s, Jane was coming the other way. She fell in love with an Irishman and came here in the 70s. I went to a Catholic school in England and I was brought up to believe that Ireland was the saintliest, most wonderful, beautiful, fantastic place in the world. And which, in part, some of it is, like land of the saints and scholars and things, but it's a different country and it has different rules and regulations about it. When I was in England, it was quite normal to have um, birth control. And so when I came to live here, I had no idea that Ireland didn't have birth control. At the time, I had the coil. And I decided to go and have this checked, because this is what you would do if you lived in England and you would go to the doctor and they would check this for you, you know. So off I went to the doctor, and uh, it was a female doctor, as far as I can remember. And she said... Don't do that kind of thing here. That's a disgrace. This is a Catholic country. We do not have things like that in this country. I believe there's a place up in something square. I can't remember the name of the square. She said, I think there's a family planning clinic up there. You go there. And, and that, I crawled out of the doctors. I was so embarrassed. And, I mean, this was my first tuition of that things weren't the same. Dear Frankie, although I'm now 22 nearly 23, I've only started to socialise recently. For the past few months, I've been going out with a very nice boy, a student, but there are a few things that I'm a bit concerned about. There are evenings when he can borrow his brother's car and we can drive out to a dance. Why am I concerned? Well, he never pays for my ticket to go to the dance. And the other thing is, he rarely kisses me goodnight. What I want to know is, am I a failure? Because surely after two months together, he'd make some attempt at being a bit more familiar with me. Would it be a good idea if I should try to kiss him on the way home? Are you a failure? At 22, 
And all because your boyfriend hasn't got around to kissing you goodnight after knowing you for two months. You've got a treasure on your hands there, but you don't realise it. On no account try to kiss him on the way home. Let him keep his eye on the road if you want to live to see 23. This thing about sex and things like that, you see, it was a dirty word. It wasn't spoken about. Well, your mother never spoke to you about it anyway. Or this enjoyment about the same climax, wasn't sure. I don't know what that was about at all. Did know? anybody have any orgasms back then? Never spoken about. We didn't even know what about the lies, certainly didn't anyone. All my friends didn't either. This kind of thing for what? More to sober, thank God, you know. And as, as we used to always say, give it up for your country. <laughs> <laughs> and you did. <laughs> give it up for your country, come the sea, and cracks in the sea. Like, That's no joke. That was the kind of thing we'd ever be over quick, like, you know. And when you were married, you were a young mother, were, yeah. were your friends also married? And if they were, did, did you talk about all this sort of stuff? Oh, we did. We spoke about sex, like, and about things, but all trust was about giving it up for your country and all this kind of thing. Are you, are you started? I'm sure I'm started. That was every month. Every month. What that does that mean you started? Overdue, per- that you're p- pregnant. Then you'd pain your neck for every time you go to charge to see, did you come on, did you come on, you know, and figure, well, no, thank God. The stress you know? of that must have been terrible. Oh, it was terrible. I mean, there was no pee on a stick at that time, you know? Mm. You were up and down the stairs like a blue-ass fly every time, and they thought, oh, thanks, very Jesus, another month. You went from month to month like that, month to month like that. Today I start with an anniversary letter. Another bride, another June. Anniversaries are usually sentimental or historical occasions. But this anniversary commemorates the chief scourge of rural Ireland. And it says... Dear Frankie, I've been keeping company with this man for ten years. And seeing as how it's our tenth anniversary this Christmas, I must ask you, what is your opinion about my chances of getting married? So far, there's been no firm mention of setting a date. To make Do you think that if I waited on for another while for him to pluck up the courage Picture to set Picture a little love nest down where the roses cling. Well, I suppose the radio was on at dinner time, you know. Dinner time is usually about one o'clock. Well, she was on a quarter to two. Dermot Maguire grew up on a farm in County Fermanagh. He went to a boarding school in Enniskillen. See, Enniskillen was called a seminary. So part of the ethos and part of the whole uh, establishment was about going on to be a priest as well. Goodness knows by now I know this man very well, but I would like to get your opinion on it. People listened to Woman's Page for various reasons. In Dermot's case, it was because he identified with some of the letters. I do love him, and surely you'd agree that my love has stood the test of time. Yours sincerely. Listening back to those letters from the vantage point of the 21st century... You might think they were all about an antique notion of romance and courtship. But with lots of them, the overriding theme is freedom and control, or lack of. I'd say he'd be willing enough, but you see, Frankie, the obstacle here is his parents. He won't get the farm till they die. Women didn't have a lot of options when it came to careers, so finding the right man was an important step in life. And when men listened to Frankie, maybe it was because they didn't have many options either. I was basically a teacher for my mother's sake, you know. I would admit that now, you know. The control was the expectations of my mother. Do you know that? 
And when did you feel then you got that back? Probably when we retired from teaching. There was that religious thing, all right, no doubt about that. You know, if you weren't going to be a priest, like at least be a teacher, you know. <laughs> did you ever consider going on to be a priest? I did, actually, you know, uh, I did, and I, and I was fairly serious about it. I thought I was, anyway. Me and, uh, and one other fellow were quite friendly, and, and we were both thinking of it. And uh, he pulled out, and then I thought probably harder about it, <laughs> and then I pulled out. Did you never think of writing to Frankie? <laughs> no, I think we were a bit scared writing to Frankie. <laughs> Look down, look down Dear Frank That lonesome road I am a man in my mid-thirties and I'm going out with this girl for nearly six years. She's 29. I love her very much and I've asked her to marry me. She says she loves me and I believe it. I've a good job and there are no obstacles. Yet she always puts me off saying she's not ready to settle yet. She never gives me a reason. I'd love a home and a family and after six years I would have thought she'd know her own mind. Any advice or explanation, Frank? Weary Toten Yours sincerely, Puzzle. Such a load Trudging down The lonesome road Look down That lonesome road. For all of the problems that were discussed on Frankie's programme, many of the really difficult ones were left untouched. They weren't my problems at the time because what she told about, I spoke about, you know, about um, the farmers wanting to get a good girl, you know, they were doing scrubbing and all the rest of it. But the deep-rooted problems wasn't spoken about. She never spoke about much about violence. Even if you went to a priest and going home that you were getting beat by your husband, you were told that your bed lay in it. And that was it. And you accepted it and you got on with it. Or she never spoke much about um, contraceptive. That came in later, but not in the 60s, you know. She never went into, you know, somebody getting violence about, um, you know, go for help, you know, there's something there for you. You know, I'm married to an alcoholic. That never came up either, you know, go to al go somewhere like that. It's almost hard for us to imagine now. Hello, good afternoon, and you're very welcome to Liveline. Few people even had phones. And if you wanted to get one, often you had to get a TD involved. And the email is columnrte.ie or even on Twitter if you're following us, you can. So there was no texting and no phone-in radio shows. But there was Frankie Byrne. Now I think it must have taken a great deal of courage to face your problem instead of shutting it away. Though I suppose it would be hard to dodge the fact that after 10 years, it's time somebody faced up. The radio had a very, very particular place in people's lives. And Frankie's programme was the first time they would have heard other people's problems. Their own problems were secret, but they would have heard other people's problems because not a lot of things were discussed openly at that stage. But there was also a degree of good, healthy curiosity and wanting to know what was going on out there outside, you know, nosiness. I found her funny as well. I mean, I wouldn't say her advice was tongue in cheek because she had a certain responsibility as a broadcaster to give sober advice. But she didn't take some of the aspects of things that people got themselves stuck into all that seriously, I think. Dear Frankie, I am 35 and an executive with an electronic company in Dublin. I don't smoke, rarely drink, and I'm considered quite a good-looking chap. I've been trying very hard to meet a girl who could meet my standards and whom I would ultimately marry, but so far I have failed. 
I consider myself an ordinary person, humble, compassionate and understanding, and I'm determined to marry a sincere Irish girl, but I don't think lovers of bright lights would be suitable and I like the simple life. I've been out with hundreds of girls, but the majority of them seem only interested in a good time on a one-night-only basis. That's not for me, because now I'm ready for marriage. Where are all the innumerable girls in their mid-twenties who write to you inquiring about prospective husbands? I can't understand the complaints I hear about Irish bachelors and their reluctance to marry. There's nothing more I wish for than to marry and settle down with a nice, sensible, settled wife. That's life. I know that I will make a perfect husband. That's what all the people say. You're sincerely done. You're riding high in April, shot down in May. But I know I'm gonna change that tune. When I'm back on top, back on top in June. First of all, Donny, I would suggest you try to rid yourself of this inferiority complex and lack of self-confidence. Secondly, I think you're mixing me up with someone else. I have no recollection of letters from innumerable girls in their mid-twenties inquiring about prospective husbands, but that's a minor matter. This may come as a shock to you, but women are actually human beings and very few of us, if any, would be particularly pleased to find ourselves scrutinised like items in a Christmas catalogue in your search for the most trouble-free model of the current trend in nice, settled wives. I've never known a woman who thinks of herself like that, however sensible and settled she may be. Coming from a man who has done his share of rambling and roving, there is something offensively patronising in the very idea. A professional housekeeper might not object if the salary and home comforts were acceptable. But I suspect that the man who says he's looking for a nice, settled, sensible wife means that he's really searching for an unpaid housekeeper with a civil tongue in her head. I'm afraid women are more demanding and difficult to please nowadays than they used to be. And we saw Frankie Byrne as a counsellor now. You know, well, there weren't counsellors in those days. That's exactly what she was. Yes, her impact was huge. And very compassionate. She seemed to be a person who was good at advice and was good at giving advice. Yeah, she had a certain authority in her voice, that's for sure, yeah. Woman's Page went off the air in 1985 and Frankie's listeners have also moved on. Joe Ambrose, the Frank Sinatra fan, is a writer and journalist and lives between here and Morocco. Monica, the Irish nurse in England, moved back to Mayo to look after her elderly mother in the 70s. Jane, the woman who moved to Ireland for love, is still here and still in love. Mary, who got married when she was 17, is happily separated. And Dermot, who listened to Frankie in boarding school in Fermanagh, is a blissfully retired teacher. 
Patricia and Maura left Jacobs in their early 20s for marriage and eventually other careers. And Pat Wallace, the man who wrote a fake letter to Frankie, now curates the National Treasures of Ireland. And Frankie? She died in 1993, and we eventually found out she'd had her own tragic life. She had a baby in her 30s and gave her up for adoption. What a great letter that would have made. Thank you.